Hi, everybody. This is Pastor Dan. Uh, there's no fancy introduction today, no music or anything like that, because I'm actually recording this sermon from my office on Monday morning. Um, so apologies if you hear any background noise or anything like that, any sirens. Um, hopefully we won't get interrupted. But uh, the reason for this, we had some major tech issues at church on Sunday. Basically everything that uh, could go wrong did go wrong. <laughs> uh, we lost the sound system and the video screens about two minutes before church started. Uh, so there's a bit of a scramble. Uh, we still did church though and it was great. Nothing got recorded though. Um, I ended up preaching from a little music stand that we put right uh, at the front row of the church. So we had uh, everyone in the sanctuary move into the first five or six rows so everyone could hear. It was actually kind of cool. It was it was a really different and uh, much more intimate way to do church. Maybe we'll try it again sometime, um, although hopefully uh, with a working sound system. <laughs> um, but so it's just me, uh, me and a microphone and a computer and a, a cup of delicious tea. Ah, there it is. Um, and we are going to try recording the same version I preached yesterday. And this is actually a pretty uh, important one. We're starting a brand new series that's going to take us through the season of Lent. But before we get into all that, let's read our scripture for today. And there's actually uh, two scripture passages. The first is Matthew 12, verses 38 to 40. And the second is Jonah 1, 1 to 3. Reading now from Matthew 12. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to Jesus, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so for three days and three nights the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. Our second reading, Jonah 1, 1, through, 1 to 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. It's the first Sunday of Lent. Uh, Lent, if you're not familiar, is a 40-day period of preparation and fasting leading up to Holy Week and Easter Sunday. And we're going to be spending the bulk of Lent, at least in our uh, Sunday morning services, diving into the book of Jonah together. Now, Jonah, if you're familiar with it, it might not be the first book of the Bible that you would think of when it comes to Lent. You might think of you know, maybe reading some stories about Jesus leading up to the cross or some sadder books like Lamentations. Um, you probably know Jonah, if you know it at all, as the story of a guy who gets swallowed by a big fish. Um, so unless you've maybe given up red meat for Lent, in which case you're going to be eating a lot of fish over the next month, outside of that very specific demographic, it might be kind of hard to see how a book like Jonah relates to Lent. But that's why I started things off with two readings from the Bible. So we read the opening verses of the book of Jonah, but we also read this relatively obscure line from the Gospel of Matthew, where the religious leaders mockingly ask Jesus for a sign, and he rebukes them, saying that the only sign they'll get is the sign of Jonah. 
So the parallel on the surface is pretty obvious. Jonah is uh, three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, and Jesus uh, spends three days essentially in the grave. But as I read these words from Jesus and then turn to look at the book of Jonah, I can't help but wonder if there's more to all this sign of Jonah business. And at the risk of beating Jesus' metaphor to death, I'm kind of curious to see what else the book of Jonah might have to teach us as we enter into this season of preparation leading up to the cross. So that's what we'll be exploring together over the next five weeks. We're going to take a deep dive into the book of Jonah. We're going to wrestle with it. We're going to explore it. We're going to see what it has to say to us in this season of Lent. And if you followed along uh, with today's reading, maybe you paused the podcast and you uh, pulled it up or something like that. But if you actually look in a Bible, you'll notice that Jonah is a really short book. In most Bibles, it takes up about two pages, uh, maybe even less. You can basically read this book straight through in about 10 or 15 minutes. Now, a lot of folks will fast during Lent, uh, give up things like coffee or chocolate or soda, things like that. But some people actually do the opposite. Some folks, rather than cutting something out, will try to incorporate something new. They'll try to adopt a new practice or a new spiritual discipline over these 40 days of preparation. So like, if, if that's you, if you're wired like me and the idea of fasting just sounds miserable, maybe you'll like the idea of trying out a new spiritual practice for Lent. And you could start with reading the book of Jonah. You could read this book once a week, uh, maybe on a Sunday morning before you come to church or like a... Uh, an evening when you when you put the kids to bed, you don't have anything else going on. Uh, the book is short enough. You could read it every day if you really want to. If you really want to do a deep dive, you could read Jonah like every morning. Uh, at that rate, you'd probably have this book memorized by Palm Sunday. But we are going to find that there is a ton of wisdom in this book, and we're really only going to be scratching the surface. So that would be my suggestion to you for Lent. If you're looking for a new practice, some new discipline to incorporate this season, try sitting down at least a few times over the next few weeks and try to read straight through the book of Jonah. Uh, We don't read straight through a book of the Bible very often, but this is a good one to start with because it's short, and I think you'll like it. This sermon is really more of an introduction. All right, we're going to zoom out a bit, get a little bit of a bird's eye view of this book. Uh, My hope is we can get a framework, uh, maybe some guideposts to help direct us as we journey through Jonah together over the next few weeks. And I really want to establish three guideposts for reading the book of Jonah. There's like three things to keep in mind to help us navigate this book. They're all pretty straightforward. You can write them down. Uh, They're also pretty easy to remember. And the first one, the first guidepost is that Jonah is hilarious. Did you see that coming? (laughs) Yeah, Jonah is actually a really, really funny book. And if you're not aware of that going in, if you don't know to look for the jokes, you're going to miss a big part of what this book is up to. Now, it's important to note that calling Jonah hilarious is not in any way a slight against the book. Uh, We're used to seeing our Bibles in like a single bound volume. We we often think about the Bible as a book, but the Bible is actually a library of books. There are 66 books in the Protestant Bible. These are books that were written uh, across different languages, in different cultures, in different continents, by different authors, in different centuries, and in many, many different genres. The Bible has poetry, 
narrative, history, personal letters. There's even an opera. The Song of Solomon uh, was written to be sung along to music. And believe it or not, <clears throat> this library of books that we regard as sacred, divinely inspired scripture also includes a work of comedy. When the ancient rabbis read Jonah, it made them laugh. Scholars today will often uh, classify Jonah as either a parody or satire. Some even consider it a farce, a divinely inspired farce. That is speaking my language. I don't know about you. That, something about that really resonates with me. But a thing to know about comedy, though, just going in, is that comedy doesn't translate very well across cultures and especially across language. Comedy is very culturally specific. Uh, if you've ever tried to watch a sitcom or a, a funny movie produced in another language with like English subtitles, you've had this painfully awkward realization that comedy doesn't translate well. What makes one group of people laugh in one culture may not seem funny at all to someone from a different culture. And we are separated from the book of Jonah by about 2,500 years of language and history and culture. So a little background on what ancient Israelites considered funny might be helpful. And uh, a staple of comedy in the ancient Near East was irony. When something happens that is the opposite of what you'd expect, or the opposite of what the characters in the story intend, ancient peoples found that hilarious. Jonah is a prophet, right? And we know the prophets. Prophets are like the heroes of the Old Testament. They're always the good guys. They're the ones who actually listen to God. We have all these prophetic stories in the Bible where God calls a prophet to leave their home, go to some distant place, stand before an evil king, and declare God's <clears throat> justice. So the book of Jonah opens. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. The prophet has been called. Jonah's been called to go to Nineveh, the most evil city on the planet, which we'll talk about in a minute, and to declare God's judgment. So Jonah, the prophet, goes to Tarshish, which is kind of hilarious. Now, it's helpful to know where these places are, okay? Um, Jonah starts out in Joppa, which is near Jerusalem, and he's told to go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. So it's in, it's in modern-day Syria. We're talking roughly 550 miles to the east of where Jonah's starting from. And instead, he buys a ticket to Tarshish, which is in the exact opposite direction. And not only is Tarshish in the opposite direction, it's the farthest known destination in the opposite direction. Tarshish is uh, basically like the, the southeastern tip of Spain is roughly where we're talking about Tarshish. 2,500 miles in the wrong way. Jonah could have said no. He could have just stayed in Joppa. He could have gone down to Egypt, which I hear is lovely this time of year. But instead, he goes 2,500 miles out of his way, away from the presence of the Lord. That, ladies and gentlemen, is irony. Now, another staple 
of ancient Near Eastern humor is absurdity or exaggeration. Think of that famous line from Jesus where he's, he's talking about hypocrisy and he says, you know, you hypocrites, you try to remove a speck from your brother's eye when you have a log or a plank in your own. That line would have killed in the first century. That's really funny. I mean, just imagine seeing a person with a log sticking out of their face running around trying to take specks out of people's eyes. That's really funny stuff. And it's funny because it's ridiculous. And there is a lot of ridiculousness in the book of Jonah. When Jonah goes to Nineveh, uh, which, spoiler alert, he eventually gets there, he goes to Nineveh and he gives the lamest prophecy that's ever been delivered. Jonah's prophecy is just five words. He says, 40 more days, Nineveh falls. He just walks through the city streets saying that over and over again. 40 more days, Nineveh falls. 40 more days, Nineveh falls. There's no mention of God. There's no mention of judgment. There's no call to repent. There's no explanation for why Nineveh is going to fall in 40 more days. And the response to this rather ridiculous prophecy is the mass conversion of the city of Nineveh to Israel's God. Everyone repents. Which is both ridiculous and ironic. So it's kind of a twofer on the ancient Near Eastern comedy front. Uh, for comparison, I don't know if you have a Bible anywhere near you. This was easier to do in church yesterday. Um, but if you open up the Bible, you can find the prophetic books that were written to God's people, to, to the Hebrews, the Israelites, the Jews. Um, in most Bibles, we're talking about 200 pages of stuff, roughly from like the book of Isaiah through Malachi. That's pages and pages of some of the most compelling poetry, oracles, prophecies, about 95% of which is written directly to God's people, calling them to repent. And none of it did any good. Jonas says five words that don't even really make sense to the city of Nineveh, the enemies of God's people, and the entire place repents. The joke's kind of on Jonah with that one. <laughs> but the absurdity doesn't even stop there, all right? In chapter 3 of Jonah, we're told that this repentance, it's not just humans who repent, it also includes animals, even the cows fast. The cows. Have you ever encountered a cow? Like, have you ever seen a cow? <laughs> yeah. They're not the most penitent of creatures. Like, I've never looked at a cow and thought, wow, now there is an animal with a heavy heart. That, that cow is really holding on to some stuff. They need to talk to some. No, that's ridiculous. And not only... Not only does Jonah say that the cows fast, but the herds wear sackcloth. Now this needs some, some explanation probably. Sackcloth was this coarse material that people would wear right on their skin as a sign of repentance. It was scratchy. It would make your whole body itch. And sackcloth was made out of unrefined goat's hair. So the goats are wearing goat's hair. <laughs> this is really funny. Like it's 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 ridiculous. Some people some people laughed in church. You might be laughing right now. You might be 
in a gym, like, jogging or something, and people think you're crazy. I find this really funny. The cows are fasting, and the goats are wearing goat's hair. Now, the comedy of Jonah, it's not just there for a laugh. As, as funny as this stuff is, once you understand it, good comedy always has a purpose. And it's usually to lower our defenses. A good comedian will make you laugh and then they hit you with a truth bomb. Something, something that challenges you or makes you think. And that's our next guidepost. The book of Jonah is counter-programming. Religion, as we often think about it, and as it's often portrayed in popular culture, religion's often about us versus them. Our God versus their God. Our God can beat up their God. Uh, our God is on our side to give us victory, to help us defeat our enemies. You can find that message in the Bible if that's what you're after. If that's what you're looking for, there are plenty of examples in the Bible of this us versus them view of God. But the Hebrew scriptures also give us Jonah, a book that is part of another tradition, another stream of thought running through our scriptures. And it's an alternative way of thinking about God that actively seeks to undermine all of that us versus them thinking. There are a number of big bad villains in the Bible. The Bible is chock full of bad guys. Egypt is an early one. Egypt enslaved God's people for 400 years. That's pretty bad. Another big bad of the Bible is Babylon. At the other end of Jewish history, at the end of Jewish history in the Bible, Babylon comes in and destroys the temple, sends the Jews into exile. But between Egypt and Babylon, there was Assyria. And the capital of Assyria is Nineveh. It's where Jonah's being called to go. And Assyria was a power the likes of which the world had never seen. In many respects, Assyria was the first global superpower to embark in empire building. The Assyrians wanted to take over the world. And they were ruthless. The Babylonians who'd rise up, you know, a few centuries later, they'd take over a place and they'd send the survivors into exile. They'd send them off miles away from home. The Assyrians didn't leave survivors. When the, Syri when the Assyrians took over a town, they would kill every last man, woman, and child. If you opposed Assyria, if you didn't submit, they crushed you. They killed all the people, and then they would burn everything down. All the structures, crush them, burn it down. And then they would take salt, and they'd run it through the fields so that nothing would ever grow there again. If you didn't bow down to Assyria, they wiped you out. Now, a bit of ancient Israelite history. If we go back in history far enough, at one point, Israel was a united kingdom. God's people all live together in what we consider like a single country. This would be like we're talking in the days of like King Saul, King David, the judges, way back then. But after King Solomon died, there was a civil war in Israel and the nation split in half. So you had the kingdom of Israel in the north and you had the kingdom of Judah in the south. Judah is where we get the word Jew. So Israel's in the north, Judah's in the south. When the Babylonians came through, centuries after all this, and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, that was Judah. 
That was the southern kingdom. It was the Jews who were carried off into exile. The Babylonians didn't have to conquer Israel. They didn't have to conquer the northern kingdom because it wasn't there anymore. In the year 722 BC, Israel was conquered by Assyria and they killed everyone. The Israelites never came back from that. Half of God's people in the Old Testament were lost. The only survivors were folks who were able to flee south into Judah before Assyria swept through the whole country. Jonah is an Israelite from the northern kingdom living in Judah, the southern kingdom. Why do you suppose that is? Yeah. The text itself is a little vague on like the exact time frame of when this all takes place, the book of Jonah. But the assumption is that this is after the Assyrians have destroyed Israel. Jonah is a survivor who lost everything to the Assyrians. Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, because he hates these people. And he has good reason to. They've taken everything from him. This was the most violent, ruthless superpower the world had ever seen, and they wiped Jonah's people off the map. Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he knows what could happen. If he actually does his job as a prophet, if he actually goes to Nineveh and God goes with him, and he actually gets the Ninevites to repent, well, then God might spare them. God might turn from his plans to destroy the Ninevites, and that's the last thing Jonah wants. Jonah wants the Ninevites to pay. He wants to see Assyria fall and answer for their crimes. He wants God to crush them like they crushed his people. But the shocking message of the book of Jonah, the counter-programming we find in the book of Jonah is that the Assyrians are God's kids too. God knows how evil they are. God knows how ruthless and violent they've become, but God loves them just as much as God loves Israel. And God wants to see even the Ninevites repent. So this book is counter-programming. The book of Jonah challenges the whole us versus them dynamic that we see play out in much of the world's religions. And as we read this book together, it's going to challenge us too. It's going to challenge our notion of who's in and who's out. Who's the good guy and who's the bad guy? Who deserves God's punishment and who deserves grace? So that's the second guidepost. The third and final point I want us to keep in mind as we read Jonah together is that the book of Jonah is a call to repentance. Uh, in Hebrew, <clears throat> the word for repent is teshuva, and it literally means to turn. Teshuva, or to repent, is this idea that you're headed in one direction, away from God, and you turn and head in the opposite direction, back to God. The book of Jonah is all about repentance. Jonah heads toward Tarshish, and God turns him back to Nineveh. 
there's a big fish involved. We'll get to that in the next week or two. <laughs> the pagan sailors who are on the boat with Jonah, they repent and turn to God. The Ninevites repent, even the cows and the goats. At one point in the book, we're even told that God repents. God turns from the plans he has to destroy the Ninevites and instead offers grace and forgiveness. And the question at the forefront of this book is, will Jonah repent? Is Jonah going to turn from the hate and the bitterness he's carrying in his heart, or is he going to let it destroy him? Is he going to let it destroy his relationship with God and drive him to the point of death? As we enter Lent together, and as we read this book and wrestle with it, that's the question I'd like us all to wrestle with. Will we repent? Will we turn from all the destructive forces in our lives, the resentment and hate we carry in our hearts, anything that's driving a wedge between us and God, will we turn from it or will we let it destroy us? Christians get ourselves in a bit of trouble with this kind of stuff because our faith emphasizes repentance at the start of the journey. Becoming a Christian often begins with repenting and turning to God. And so it's easy for us to assume that we've already done the work. We've already repented. We've already turned from sin and embraced God. So we don't need to answer the call to repentance. But that couldn't be more wrong. Jonah assumes that he's right with God. Even as he's fleeing God's very presence, he still believes that he's in. He's one of the good guys. All of this is reinforced by Jonah's us versus them mentality. He's blind to the fact that that very way of thinking is destroying him. What bitterness are you harboring in your heart? What are you holding on to that you need to let go of? Is there a broken relationship somewhere in your life that needs to be mended? Is there some destructive habit you keep returning to? Maybe even something you hide from those closest to you out of shame. What are the dark spaces in your life? What are the places you don't invite other people into? What is it that's still making you angry? or fearful, or ashamed? What is it that's driving a wedge between you and God? Lent is a time to repent. It's an invitation to search the deepest, darkest corners of our souls and acknowledge the work we still have to do. Every single one of us is Jonah. We all have a Nineveh in our lives, a stumbling block, something that we are running away from even as God is calling us to turn and face it. And my invitation to you this Lent, as we examine the sign of Jonah together, is to turn, repent, acknowledge what it is that's driving you away from God, and go in the opposite direction. Let's pray. 
God, we repent. We turn to you, Lord, and we acknowledge that we all have a ways to go. There's not a single one of us who's a finished product. We all carry darkness. We all carry shame. And we all need your grace, Lord. And so we pray. We pray that you would come alongside us in this Lenten season and open our eyes. Empower us to see the things that are driving us away from you, God. And help us to turn, to return to you. Make us holy, Lord, and make us whole. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.